Yeah. They're going to help him, help him sell it to, to find hopefully more than $5. <sighs> As a young man, I traveled uh, 7,000 miles away from home. And, and two things happened that I will never forget while I'm over there. One of them was I was chased by monkeys. And it was caught on camera. The second thing is that I found a Bible-believing church that were worshiping, that were serving God, and it was already there before I got there in a place where I didn't imagine I'd find many churches. It was called Senry Newtown Baptist Church. Senry Newtown Baptist Church. It was in a part of Kobe, Japan, and um, I, I had found out that the train was there, or that the train could take me there, and so I went from my dormitory when I was studying abroad, and I went there, and and you might wonder, how did that church show up there? How in the world did an independent Baptist church get in Kobe, Japan? Well, there were some missionaries named Don Frazier and, or excuse me, Don Sisk and Les Frazier. And they went a number of years ago to Japan to give out the gospel and to see churches started. And they started a church in a city called Osaka. They trained a man there. Pastor Ogawa was the, the person who took over after the, um, the missionaries left, and that church took on the responsibility, this church in Osaka, to reach their own world, their own land with the gospel. And so they started other churches. Four or five other churches, I think, came out of that one. Maybe more than that by now, I'm sure. And that's how the church where I went got started. Somebody, a, a local church in America, sent missionary Don Sisk, and another local church sent missionary Les Frazier, and or another local church sent them, and they ended up overseas, and they saw people saved and organized together into a church and uh, baptized, and they ordained them uh, pastors over there, and then that church took on its responsibility to reach its people, and then that church started another church, and, and on and on it goes as those churches themselves uh, supported missionaries. And so that's where I studied when I was, or that's where I worshiped when I was studying abroad. And so you're sitting in a church meeting right now. Remember, the church is the people. How did this get here? How did this get here? You, you, might, you might wonder, but uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a Southern Baptist church planter who was sent uh, from a, a local church out in order to, his name was Ben Hope. Uh, some of you perhaps remember our 50th anniversary, and you got to see a, a video of Brother Ben Hope that we had recorded. And what a blessing it is, because it wasn't long after that that he actually passed away. And he came, and he was here for about two years, and and it started in a little house right on Columbia Road up here. That house, of course, is no longer there, and we are no longer meeting in that house. But it started out very simply with them giving the gospel message, talking about how Jesus uh, died uh, for the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived or will ever live, how he was buried and he rose from the grave. And they went out and they saw people who put their faith and trust in Jesus. They got baptized, they got organized together. And it wasn't uh, as simple as I'm making it out to be, but over the years, the more than 50 years that we have been here uh, at this place, that, that's, that's how this congregation has come about and all the fruit and ministry that has happened because of it. And so there was another pastor, once Brother Hope left from here, who took over and stayed for a number of years, John Withers and then Pastor Jenkins, that many of you are familiar with. And then uh, we find ourselves here today in this place. And you say, is, is that pattern normal? Is that pattern normal? Is, is there a pattern that things ought to follow? As we talk about world missions and we get ready for our mission conference, which begins this Wednesday evening, I encourage all of you to do everything you can in order to arrange your schedules to be here. You say, the kids are tired. 
You say, there's lots to do. I've got extra things. I've got commitments and all of that. Life will never slow down for you. And it's never going to get any easier. You're going to have to make the decision to serve the Lord and put him in his rightful place while it's busy because peaceful times are just not coming. And so I want to encourage you to adjust your schedule. You say, I'm going to have to call off work. Then call off work. Trust me, I've called off work for dumber things than Mission Conference, and you probably have too if you were honest about it. So do what you can to be here. I know you'll be blessed by it. But as we're, we're talking about world missions, how do churches get started? Is there any biblical account that you and I can go to to see God's pattern for how these churches get here? How many of you think it's important, and I hope you would say this, it's important for a believer to have a home church, to have a local church, right? How many of you know that there's not enough local churches out there that are Bible-believing churches? How many of you know that there's, there's not enough out there? Well, it's, it's true. There are places all over even the United States that don't have a good gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, especially in the small towns of America. And so we have a remarkably clear account in Acts chapter 14, and I'd like you to turn there with me today as we talk about starting churches. We see how one church ordained some God-called missionaries and sent them abroad to start churches, and they did. In Acts chapter 14 beginning in verse number 21. The word of God says, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how that he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, the truth, the power of it, the pattern of it. May your spirit help us in this hour in order to understand your desire for your work around this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So by this time, the Lord Jesus Christ has given his life on the cross. He died, was buried, he is risen from the grave. And for 40 days, he spent time with his disciples after his resurrection and then ascended up into heaven. And the Lord Jesus commissioned, he charged, he gave orders, marching orders for his followers to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus to every creature, that they were to be witnesses to Jesus and witnesses of Jesus's resurrection to those who had never heard. And so he sent them to do this. And as that time went on, people came to believe in Christ. And some of those people, they didn't stay in Jerusalem where most of the preaching was going on. They went to different locations. And eventually a church was started in a city called Antioch. Now there's two churches or two cities called Antioch that we're going to talk about today. Don't let that, we're going to say, um, we're going to say home Antioch and mission Antioch. We're going to do that because it's a whole lot easier to figure that out than to worry about their names. So in, in this church in Antioch, we read about how God called two men out of that church that were pastoring there, that were teaching and preaching there, and he called them into the mission field. If you remember, we talked about that last week. Acts 13 and verse 1 says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch 
certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. This was the beginning of their missionary journey. They were going to travel from different city to different city. They were going to preach the gospel, and they were going to see what the Lord would do in those places. And so, in verse 21, back in Acts 14, it says... And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. And you're probably thinking to yourself, I have no idea where any of these cities are. I've never heard of Lystra in my entire life. Where is this? Well, could I get a map? I have a, a map up here. And though you may not be able to read it because of the size of the font, you get the idea that they started off there on the eastern side of the map where Antioch is, and you can see by the red arrows the pattern that they traveled. And then once they got to the end of that, when they were in Derby, they ended up going back through some of the cities that they'd already been to, and then they came to Perga and they sailed all the way back to their home church. That's, that's how this happened. This is what that looked like. So these were different cities that they traveled to around the Mediterranean. If you're looking for an idea of where this is, if you look down at the bottom right corner of your map, you can see where Jerusalem is. And hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea. Now, some of you, geography was not your thing. All right, I'm not going to ask you to list the states and capitals. No need to worry about that. But I want you to at least understand some of where they were traveling and what they were doing. This is what they did. They traveled and they preached the gospel. The gospel means the good news. It specifically refers to what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And so it says here that they preached the gospel. They declared it. Sometimes they went into synagogues and they were able to preach there and other places. Uh, they did other things. But we know in each of these cities, they went and they declared the gospel. And it says that they taught. If you look in verse 21, it says that they had taught many. Remember, they were told that they were to teach all nations. And we said that's to make disciples of all nations, the kind of teaching that results in someone putting their faith and trust in Jesus becoming a follower of Jesus. So that's what they were doing there. They were preaching the gospel and they had many people become followers of Jesus. It says, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. You see, they, they, uh, they got run out of all of these cities. What ended up happening was they would go into the synagogue or where people were meeting and they would declare the good news of Jesus Christ and some people would be excited and they would believe. Not even just the Jewish people that had been waiting for the coming of their Messiah, but Gentiles, Greeks, would hear. And they got excited, and they believed as well. In fact, in some of the places, the, the Jewish believers, which should have been the most ready to receive, or excuse me, the Jewish uh, followers of Judaism, that should have been the most ready to receive, they weren't as ready as some of the others. And what ended up happening is when a lot of people started becoming believers and followers of Jesus, that the non-believing people in the city ran them out and they had to leave. Threats of violence, shoving them out, perhaps throwing stones at them. That was a popular thing to do in that time, in that place. In fact, in some parts of the world, they still will throw stones and, and mob around you in different places if you do that. We saw some of that going on in India and videos sent to us of it. Well, they went to the next city and they preached the gospel again. So when they got ran out of uh, Mission Antioch and they ended up 
at um, Iconium. They got ran out of Iconium and ended up going to Lystra. And when they got run out of Lystra, they ended up in Derby. And so they just kept going as they were able to preach and teach the message. And what the message was, was the gospel. That was the message. The message does not change. The message is the gospel. That is the thing that we have to offer people. What we have to offer people is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Not our opinions, not a, a social gospel, not some sort of societal uh, change alone, not politics, uh, not prosperity. What we have is how mankind can get right with God, can avoid hell and gain heaven. That's the message that they were given. And so that's what they delivered. The, the means of how they did it may have changed, but the method, which was preaching, teaching, discipling, and the message stayed the same. That's tr the truth today. When we think about going across the world and getting the gospel into different cultures, it's not always going to look like this. It's not. It's not always going to look like this. But some things will be the same. The message will always be the same. The message will always be the same. It will be the whole counsel of God, emphasizing, of course, first the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the, the methods will stay the same. The methods will be teaching and preaching and soul winning, discipleship, praising and worshiping God, gathering together on the Lord's day. These are things, now it may not look exactly the same, right? We are this morning in a, a comfortable building, praise God, comfortable seats. Uh, we have heat this morning. Maybe you say too much, maybe you say not enough, but we do have it. There's carpet on the ground. People clean the building before you came. We have a sound system. We had a piano in here. But not everybody that is meeting this morning, or perhaps many of them have already met today, not everybody's church service is going to look like this. How many of you, you understand that? I, I have, I have a, uh, a shed in my backyard where I put the lawnmowers. Right? That's where the lawnmower goes. We've got a bunch of other stuff in there that probably needs to be taken out of there. It's not very big, but it's about the size of the church building that's connected to Sejano's property. Uh, it's, it's, about, it's about that size. And it's, it's probably not too different in how it was built. It's a wonderful place, and those people are thankful there to have it, and they're glad that they get to worship, but it is very, very simple. Uh, when you, you probably are trying to keep your shoes polished for church, but good luck into Cruel Baptist Church, because the floor in the building is dirt, right? The seats that everyone's sitting on are the ones that you probably see on sale at Ollie's for a handful of dollars. They're, they're dangerous-looking plastic chairs that could collapse on you in any moment, right? That's what they're, they're sitting on, or wooden benches that have been there quite some time. Uh, the, the lighting may not be great. There may not be a lot of windows. There may not be a lot of air moving inside of those places, but they're still gathering together, they're hearing preaching, they're singing God's praises, they're reaching out to their community. Some of those places, they don't have a building. They just gather together in somebody's house. We've got friends uh, that are in China that are meeting in people's houses in groups of maybe 20 or smaller because it's not safe for them to have a church building. And they have to stagger their entrance into those buildings as they go so that the police don't notice that they're there. Because if you're going to have a church that preaches and teaches the Bible in China, uh, the government's not going to like that. You can have churches as long as you tow the Communist Party line in your, your churches. You can have them publicly in China as long as you don't mind the CCP telling you what you can and cannot preach. 
and having them monitor all of your books and your messages. You're, you're, as long as you don't have any trouble with that, you can have that. But we've got brothers and sisters in Christ. They'll never have a building like this. They're not going to dress any differently to draw attention to themselves when they come in. But they're still meeting and doing it God's way. They're still meeting and doing it God's way. So the means may change, but the message and the methods will never change. And in verse 22, it says, when they went back to these cities, they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. You know, our last meeting here, guys, didn't end so well. We got chased out of town. You remember. We got chased out of town. Things weren't so good last time. But I want you to know, we're still here. We're still telling people about Jesus. And you should stand firm. They confirmed them. They strengthened them. They told them, don't move. Don't give up. You've heard the good news of the Messiah. Don't back away from it. Don't go back into dead religion that doesn't have any life to it because it's denied the Lord Jesus. Don't end up being worried about what's going to happen to you. Stand firm. Continue in the faith and the things that you've been told and that you have been made sure of. Be unmovable. I want you to know that we don't face the kind of persecution that perhaps Paul and Barnabas faced on their missions, but we do have people that would like us to give up ground. There are forces in this world, some of them physical, some of them spiritual, that would like for you and I to take steps in the wrong direction, to cede ground to the enemy, to quit on God. Our flesh, the part of us that pulls us towards sin, this world which leaves God out of their decision-making and their values and becomes very wicked and very selfish very quickly. And also the great enemy, the adversary, Satan himself, would love to see us give up ground and end up quitting. And he would love to see that happen to you. And some of those believers were probably right on the edge because of what they'd seen. Everything was fine until Paul and Barnabas came and they told us about the Messiah and we believed and that was very exciting. And in some of these places, there were miraculous healings that happened and they couldn't deny it. But then they got in trouble with the people who refused to believe. And some of them are thinking, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth it to be pointed out and to be made to feel different. Maybe it's not worth it to have people mock me or, or give me a hard time. Maybe, maybe I ought to just go back to the way things were. But Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to continue on and to warn them that there would be persecution, there would be oppression against them, and that that is how we will enter into the kingdom of God. Not perhaps a pleasure cruise sailing easily, but most certainly battling for the Lord. Verse number 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Every church needed leadership. Every church needed leadership. The word elder that we see here is used synonymously throughout the book of Acts. Elder, bishop, pastor, this idea of a shepherd, uh, it, it, is, it is understood that that is what we think of today when we think of the office of a pastor. If you say, I don't know that I agree with that, I can show you from Scripture, we're not going to take the time today for that. But we, we, said, we see here that every church had to have pastors ordained in it. Every church needed to have elders ordained in it. Why? Because God has designed the Christian life so that every believer should have a pastor and every believer should have a home church. Every believer should have a home church and every believer should have a pastor. I want you to know that I am thrilled that we have an app on our phone where you can see the services live. You can see the services that were preached in the past. 
You can connect with devotional material. You can give your tithe and your missions offering online. In fact, you can even set it up to reoccurringly give your $5 every week if you want to. You can do all of that, and I'm glad we have that, but that alone is not being a part of a church. And so people that have the option to gather and that there is a local Bible-believing church where they are, they ought to gather, and they ought to be with one another. I know that perhaps you say, I just, I tune in every week online in hopes that Pastor Steve is preaching. You know, we get Pastor Bill too often, but every once in a while he's preaching, it's worth it. So you keep coming back online, and this is what you consider to be church. And if you are in some place where you cannot go to a local church, maybe there isn't one within driving distance for where you are, or maybe your health doesn't allow it, I'm glad you're joining with us. But if you just prefer to stay home in your pajamas... When there is a Bible-believing church, whether it's ours or somebody else's, I would encourage you, go change your clothes and get to church. Get up, make the effort. It's hard. Yes, it's hard. Most worthwhile things are hard. Where did we get the idea that serving God was going to be easy? That there would be no trouble? Where did we get the idea about that? Everyone wants to say about how easy everything is today. You can have all of your food delivered to you, all of your groceries delivered to you. You can have people cook the food and then deliver it to you. I mean, we, we live in a society of great ease. That is not, you, you can't just order in church. You can't. I know some people, they have no option, and this is the best that they have is to, to tune in this way. But if you can be here, be here. If you can be here, be here. Why? Because watching something online is not the same thing as fellowshipping with the brethren. Watching online is not the same thing as having a pastor. I have needed my pastors. I have needed them. I needed them at times when I realized I needed them, and I needed them at times when I didn't think I wanted them. I needed them at both times because I needed somebody to care for my soul. One of the saddest things that you read about in the Old Testament is a great godly king who just looked around to his right and his left and he says there's just nobody that even cares for my soul what a sad thing that would be to have no one to care for you and i am most certainly not the perfect pastor and if you find the perfect pastor uh in the perfect church don't join it chances are we'd ruin it if we joined it because we're not perfect people and so i certainly have not done all that i ought to do but i'm trying and I want to be a blessing to you and your family. Every church needed elders, and they set them apart. They ordained them. By the way, their authority to ordain them was not because they were something special. It's not because they had been given some special uh, charge by Jesus alone. No, Paul and Barnabas were sent out of the church in Antioch. The church sent them just as much as Paul and Barnabas were called to go. The church was called to send, and the authority of that local church went with them. So it wasn't Paul's authority or Barnabas' authority on which they ordained those men. It was on the authority of the church that sent them. It was on the, and today it's the same thing. And so they prayed and they fasted on behalf of this new church. And it says, then they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. You know, uh, commending... You say, what is commending somebody to the Lord? It's entrusting. It's handing over. You know, when you go and you put money in the bank, you entrust it to that bank's care and keeping. You're no longer there managing it. You're no longer looking at it. You're no longer making sure it's there. The responsibility for it has been completely shifted over to the bank. And in the same way, Paul and Barnabas loved these people 
They obviously, uh, blood, sweat, and tears were given for them in face of all the persecution, and they were excited about them following Jesus. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't maintain some sort of denominational control over them. They didn't set themselves up as the, the great missionaries that all of these little churches need to bow to. No, once they had ordained elders and they had prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord, and that local church would find its head... Not in Paul, not in Barnabas, not in the church in Antioch, not in the church in Jerusalem, but in Jesus Christ alone, for Christ is the head of the church. There was no denominational structure put in there. Now, Paul and Barnabas would try and keep in touch with them. They would seek to go and visit them again. Some of the churches that they would start, uh, Paul would write letters to them, encouraging them in areas where they need to be corrected or encouraged. But Christ is the head of every local church. Finally, they make their way back. Verse 24 and after they had passed throughout Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and then sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. After they had started those churches and they had set the ministry going, they returned back to their, their sending church. We have this happen today when our missionaries come home on furlough. How many of you have ever heard the term furlough before? Right? Maybe a missionary is on the field for four years, five years. Some go longer than that. And sometimes people would, it would be decades. Now modern transportation makes it a whole lot easier. We can be just about anywhere in the world in three days. Just about anywhere. And they would come back, and what did they do? Verse 27. When they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how that he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. They were thrilled. This was a church that had a heart for not just Jewish people, but also for Gentile people, multicultural. And so they were thrilled when many people from many different cultures believed the gospel. And the church rejoiced, and they came back and gave a report because of the authority that had been placed over them. This is the pattern that happened with us and with many churches around the world today that follow the biblical pattern, that a church sends out missionaries or church planters. By the way, if the term church planting is new to you, I want you to think about, instead of building a building, I want you to think about planting a tree. And it starts out small, and it starts out simple, but eventually it grows larger and larger and, and bears fruit. And so a, a church is organic, it's alive, it's living, it's not just policies and procedures in a location or programs. It's the people. And so when we talk about planting, we talk about starting a church because of how much closer it is to growing something. And today, we have modern missionaries that follow this, this same thing. We have modern missionaries that follow the same thing. In fact, they come and they tell us about their sending church, about where they're going. And perhaps you wonder, how is it that those missionaries end up here? Like, do we have some list of people that we we have to have in? Is there some Baptist, deacon, pope, something like that somewhere that tells everybody what they have to do? And no, no, it's not. In fact, it's a very interesting process. We talked a little bit about it last week, but Pastor Steve is going to tell us how our church ends up having missionaries come in each month and during mission conference. Thank you, Pastor. If you're here last Sunday, we passed out this booklet, which we try to put together every year of all the missionaries that we support. If you do not have one, I invite you to, at the end of the service, there's still a few more here up on the Lord's Supper table. But inside this book, there's a little chart, and maybe you looked at it, maybe you didn't, that I wanted to speak briefly about. Uh, last week, I spoke about the challenges of the deputation process, what that was, what it looked like for a missionary, and uh, the idea of, of going from church to church to church 
over a fairly extended period of time, up to two years, three years, and sharing what God is doing in, in their life, where he's called them to, the burden that he's given for them. Uh, one of the statistics, if you have that booklet, maybe tucked away in your Bible, says that oftentimes a missionary will have to present their ministry in 200 different churches over the course of their deputation to raise, to gather enough supporters for them to be able to go to the, the mission field. So um, the implication from last week was that they make a lot of contacts with churches. And I have been blessed for a number of years now to be the primary point of contact for missionaries calling to schedule meetings here at Columbia Road Baptist Church. So at, the, at, the, uh, at some point in a given year, uh, Pastor Bill will give me a list of open dates that uh, as he plans out his preaching calendar, so we've already, he's already done this for 2023, and so he's, he's laid out his sermon series that he plans on preaching as the Lord leads him, but every month we leave one Sunday evening uh, in each month open for a missionary to come and share their ministry. And then we also leave that week, uh, as we're approaching here this week, the missions conference. And so over the course of any given year or any given day or any given week, uh, we get a lot of missionaries that contact Columbia Road Baptist Church, uh, pursuing the opportunity of scheduling a meeting to, to come here and to present their work. And so uh, in the past, that has been largely done through phone calls. Uh, as things evolve and change, uh, at least for us and maybe the way I've managed it, many of those don't come as much through phone calls anymore as they do through emails. And so oftentimes a church will, or a missionary will get a list of, of churches in a certain area and will start working that list. Uh, sometimes the missionaries that we have in says, hey, Columbia Road is a great church to go to. They love missionaries. You ought to call them. And so they have that little network among themselves. Uh, Pastor Bill uh, obviously spent a good bit of time down in, in Tennessee, and, uh, and so he has a lot of contacts there. And he, a lot of these missionaries that come through, he taught when they were in Bible college. And so they uh, contact our church. So I'll receive those calls. And every single missionary that contacts us, and you may have never seen this on our website, but the main website of Columbia Road Baptist Church, ColumbiaRoad.org, if you were to look at the very bottom of that website, in the lower right-hand corner, there is a very discreet two-letter or two-word phrase that says, Go Ye. And so I will direct missionaries to go to that, to go to our homepage, and look for that Go Ye link and click on it. And when they click on that, that brings up what we call a missionary application. And so we have a process where we vet these missionaries that... that uh, that call in trying to schedule meetings with us. So on that application, we will capture things like their basic information, their wife's name, their, their number of children, that sort of thing. If they have a website, if they have a doctrinal statement that they can email to us. And then we'll ask them, have you read our doctrinal statement? Have you read our missions policy, which is a, a summary document of the philosophy that, that we have as we're trying to grow our missions program at Columbia Road Baptist Church and reach the gospel with it. So, And there are links to each of those. They can click on a link. It'll take them directly to our church's doctoral statement, to our, our missions philosophy document. And so we'll ask them to affirm that they agree with those. And if they don't agree, in what areas you know, do you find yourself wanting more questions or uh, questions that you have that you would like answered? We ask them if they're a member of a church. And if so, what church are you a member of? We ask them if they meet the biblical requirements for uh, being a pastor or a missionary, as outlined in the Word of God, Titus and First Timothy. We ask them uh, questions about uh, what, are the, what is their position on the biblical text issue. 
So we don't really try to lead them. We want them, we, we leave that question somewhat generic to see how they're going to respond to that. We ask them if their primary mission is to establish local churches. We, we believe that mission, missionaries that we want to engage with and, and partner with should have primarily the idea of starting local churches. And there's many ways to support that through Bible translation work and, and uh, teaching in Christian schools for uh, some that come through. We ask them to uh, talk about their field of calling, uh, to explain their, their call to the ministry, to explain the burden that God has given them. Uh, we ask them when they, when they expect to be on the field. We ask them how much money they're trying to raise specifically, and I ask for a dollar figure there, I want to know what they're trying to raise to operate in Brazil, uh, both from personal support and work funds. Some of that's data gathering on my part to better understand what the current needs are, but again, we're looking for reasonableness there. We ask them, again, where they're at currently in their support. We ask them about their local church ministry experience. We ask them about their, their Bible college or their educational preparation to equip them to... Uh, to be able to, to go to the mission field. So we capture a lot of information in that. And so that comes back to me, and then I'll begin to, to review that. And if it appears as if it is a match, uh, their philosophy and our philosophy mesh together well, then I will say, okay, here are some dates that I have available on our church calendar. Do any of those meet your availability? And, and sometimes they don't. And, uh, again, it's, it's best that a missionary plan out their schedule so they're not going from Ohio to California to Texas to Florida, back to Ohio. Again, they need to approach that very logically as the Lord leads, but you know, try to group as many uh, churches in one specific area. So let's say we're successful. We schedule them on a certain Sunday evening or within the missions conference, and they ultimately come to our church, and they present their ministry. They share their heart. Uh, they preach. And as a church, we get to know more about them. We begin to pray for them. Hopefully we, we've taken it upon ourselves to encourage them, and then they move on to the next place. And then a month later, another missionary shows up, and we have that, that similar process that takes place. And so at the, as the year comes to a close, and this usually is after our missions conference, so we're, this is the period of time that we're coming up on, uh, we have in our church a mission team, and, and many of you have gotten to know them over the years. They, they plan out a lot of logistics associated with our missions conference, a lot of the behind-the-scenes work, taking care of the haven, all these sort of things. Uh, after the missions conference has concluded for the year and the year is coming to a close, then we get together as a team and begin to, to review every missionary that has come through this given calendar year. So I will prepare a booklet for them that will uh, have a picture of them, again, to remind them of uh, who they were. It's usually their prayer card, that sort of thing. I'll, ha I'll have a copy of this missionary application document for each of the missionary families that have come, come through. I'll have a link oftentimes to the message that they preached that we have stored on our, our church's database. So if they need to remind themselves to uh, go back and refresh themselves with each of those missionaries. And so we'll begin to discuss each of those families. Uh, never do we say we're going to be able to take on X number of missionaries this year. Uh, we begin praying as the Lord leads and Lord show us which ones that you would have us partner with. Uh, a thing that kind of goes on behind the scenes with our missions team as well is as these missionaries come to our church and, and share their ministry, they're listening to you, our church, for feedback. They're asking, and it's some, sometimes they may ask you the question, what did you think of that missionary? What impressed you about them? What, you know, what encouraged you about this missionary? So they're gathering feedback, as all of us are on this team, and as the year comes to a close, we meet together and begin to share all that feedback. Sometimes we'll do a 
a, like a dry run vote uh, for each member of the team. And the way I did this last year, I said, okay, I want you to take seven, for all the missionaries that came, I want you to, to vote for seven, you have seven votes. Uh, you can put all seven of those votes on one family that you maybe you feel really strong with, strongly uh, for, or you can spread them across seven different. There's nothing magical about that number. That's not a number that we use every year. And that's not even necessarily we're voting to see who we're going to support. It's just a data point to kind of see what the data shows us about are there commonalities that appear there. And so the, the team gets together. We, we certainly listen to our pastor's input. We listen to the congregation's input. And we solicit that in various forms throughout the course of the year. And then ultimately we decide by faith who we're going to be able to take on for support in, in the coming year, starting that year. So we already have 100 families, as you know, that we support as a church at at least $100 a month. And that's a pretty substantial uh, commitment uh, every, every month, every quarter. That adds up to about $34,000 every, for every quarter that we're sending to, to missionaries. And so that's why you've heard us over the last several weeks really reemphasize the need to have missions giving because we as a church are committed to these missionaries. We're holding the rope for them. And through COVID and so forth, we've seen some, some decrease in there. So we're re- bringing attention to that again to reinforce the importance of this and, and remind people again of the need for us individually to sacrificially give to see that the gospel is carried to all corners of the earth. And so we'll decide ultimately as the Lord leads who we're going to take on for support. And we have the great privilege of, of then contacting those missionaries and letting them know that uh, beginning with the new year that uh, they will become part of the CRBC missions family and we will send support to them on a quarterly basis. So that's kind of the, the summary of things that go on behind the scenes for our missions program. So Uh, Pray for that process. Pray for the decisions that this team is going to be walking through over the next uh, month or so as we consider who we're going to add to our our missions program. If there are some families that greatly impressed impressed you this year, that just really blessed you and encouraged you and said, hey, we need to help this family. We need to make them part of our our missions family here at Columbia Road Baptist Church. Talk to one of the committee members, myself, Pastor Bill, uh, Pat Nowak, Lynn Arbogast, um, Ben Pastor, uh, who am I forgetting? Jimmy Lowe, uh, Chris Robles. Uh, talk to one of us, and we'll make sure that we get that feedback and share it with the team as well. Amen. Thank you for the opportunity to provide a little light on how we handle this missionary selection process. And if you want to check out our application, go click on Go Ye, but at least make sure I know when I get the email that it's, you know, you're not pretending to be a missionary that you're not, but just want to see all the questions that that we're asking them. I have a feeling that he'll regret that he gave that link out. Some of you are probably going to... uh... Anyway, points of application. Let's draw some quick applications. If you're in the habit of writing things down during sermons, these would be the things to write down as we wrap things up. First of all, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. If you're here this morning, or perhaps you're watching or listening online, and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not absolutely sure that heaven is your home, I want you to get that settled. That is the message that Paul and Barnabas brought to these cities, and if you want to see a church established, if you want to see a, uh, a life changed, there's, there's no other message for it. Um, this is the message of the modern missionary, as well as missionaries of Paul and Barnabas, because it's the message of the church. This is God's message. 
And so if you've never, by faith, asked the Lord Jesus to forgive your sins and be your Savior, believing that he died for you and rose, for the grave, rose from the grave, this is the time to do that. In just a moment, we're going to have what we call a time of invitation, where we invite you to act on what it is that God has spoken to you about in your own heart and mind during this time together. And if you have thought, perhaps, I'm not really a church person, I don't know much about this Jesus thing, maybe I'm, I believe in God or some notion of it, but I, I've never gotten specific about asking Christ to forgive my sins. Maybe you've just trusted that your parents, since they were good Christians, it means that you're fine, or you, you're a member of some church, maybe even a member of this church, but you have doubts. You have doubts about whether or not you're, you're on your way to heaven. That, that's the time to act. I'll be down here standing at the head of the aisle and then uh, people will be coming and praying. They'll be praying in their seat. They'll be singing the invitation song. Just slip out of your seat and come and let me know and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. And somebody will take you aside, a gentleman with a gentleman, a lady with a lady, and show you from the word of God how you can know without a doubt that your sins are forgiven. Get that peace. Believe the gospel. Second of all, we need to continue in the faith. We need to continue in the faith. Paul and Barnabas, even though they were literally run out of town, they did not quit. They did not quit. The people were not all happy to hear the message of the gospel. Isn't that wild, Brother Randy? I mean, could you imagine you leaving the comfort of the United States and the solid salary of perhaps home missions over here and that you would drive all around to all of those churches and deal with all of the rigmarole of deputation, and then you and your family would go overseas, and that you would tell these people the message of eternal life, could you imagine that they would be anything other than unbelievably grateful? No. No, that's, that's actually not how that always works. You're going to find people that are not thrilled that you're there, that they don't want to hear it that they don't want to change their ways. They don't want to admit that they're sinners. They don't want to admit that there's a God. They don't want to admit that they're accountable to anybody. They don't want to admit that the superstitions and the traditions of their culture are not enough. And so they, they push back against it because of their pride, because of their, their sinfulness. And you know what? People do that here too. People do that here too. I, I was told as a 16-year-old young man, in addition to the good news about Jesus, I was told the bad news about Jesus. You know what the bad news was? That I was a sinner. I didn't like that. I really didn't like that because I thought I was a pretty good person. Now, objectively, I wasn't, <laughs> but people don't think about it like that. They think, well, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than she is, but I had to come to terms with the fact that I was a sinner and other people will have to deal with that hard part of the good news as well. And you and I, we, we need God's blessing. And we're not going to find God's blessing if we turn tail and run because this culture or because people in this culture do not like us. This lost, hurting world needs your light. It needs your testimony. It needs you to stand. And you know what? Your friends that make fun of you, that, that, don't, that don't invite you out to do things as much anymore, your friends that perhaps mock you behind your back and talk about you behind your back because you're going to church and you're doing these things and you're not doing those things, you know what? They need you to stand. Because you know what's going to happen is their life is going to fall apart. Everything that they've been trusting in and everything that they've been leaning on is going to get yanked out from underneath them. They're going to become unmoored, and that is because God is starting to work in their life. And he's going to get involved and he's going to keep all of the distractions and pull those out so that they have no choice but to look up. And they're going to remember that young lady 
or that not-so-young lady, they're going to remember that young man or that not-so-young man that prays at lunch before he or she eats at school, in the college cafeteria, on the job site, in the office. That neighbor that always sort of rolls their eyes at you when you're always coming and going on Sunday to church and, and that you're, you're not involved in, in this or that and you've, you've uh, asked them to keep it down when they're partying. That neighbor that's just sort of obnoxious towards you, when they get that diagnosis, whether it's for them or their loved one, and they don't know what to do, they're going to remember that there's somebody that knows how to pray that there's somebody that knows how to get a hold of God, that there's somebody who stood firm in the face of all of their mocking. The people around you that are trying to make you quit, they're the ones, though they don't know it, that need you to stand. So that when they need a Christian, when they need someone that knows God, they will find you there. You see, we don't really suffer much in the way of physical threat or physical violence in the United States. We're, we're usually just afraid to disappoint people or offend people. We're afraid to be rejected or mocked or censored. But we need to continue on in the face of that. The only way to never have any enemies and never have anyone say anything nice about you is to do nothing, believe nothing, and say nothing. Unless you roll over and show your belly and do nothing and become just like those that don't know God, the people that don't know God are going to be somewhat upset with you because your holiness will remind them of their unholiness. Your willingness to follow God will remind them of their rebellion against God. Your willing to live in the light will shine a light into their darkness and display things that they don't want displayed. You say, why don't all sinners run to God if he offers forgiveness? The same reason that all uh, robbers don't run and find police officers. Because they don't want to be caught. But at some point, many will come to faith in Christ. We rejoice in that. Continue in the faith. Do right. Speak truth in love. Have compassion, but do not quit. Lastly, pray, give, and go through your local church. Pray, give, and go through your local church. Paul and Barnabas, they were sent by that church in their home Antioch. They were out there witnessing about Jesus. They were planting churches. They were ordaining pastors. And the authority for them to do this was given to them by their church, their local church in Antioch. And the missionaries are called to go, as we said, and the churches are called to send. And that's the same thing today. You see what happens? Let me give you a real practical example. Randy and Kelly Johnson are missionaries in our church. They were the ones up here teaching you how to find $5 to give to missions each week. They are missionaries sent out of our church. They work with a ministry called First Bible, and they do many different things that uh, help churches be planted. They help people get the word of God. And any, of you, any of you wonder how to have a church without the Bible? How's that going to work out? How are people going to grow if they don't have a copy of God's word for themselves? How's a pastor going to preach if he has no confidence? What if they have a bad version of the Bible that's inaccurate or that somebody took their doctrine and they wrote it in instead of letting the word of God be the word of God and they go and they read and they say, well, in our language, I know it says this, but this isn't actually the right word for it. It's actually this. If you had to do that, do you think that you could get people to believe the word of God was sufficient and was without error? No. No, it would be very hard. So they get people the word of God because there's no church planning without a Bible. There's no discipleship without a Bible. You might be able to get people saved, but the, the organizing and the teaching all things whatsoever Christ has commanded you, that doesn't happen without a Bible. They also see nationals trained. You know, um, you and I can't go and live in many countries around the world. We're just not allowed to stay there. We can go there for a time. Some of them are not even allowed in for a time. 
But what they do is they go and they teach people and help people that are teaching church planters. So they've started way back up here. So instead of just planting a church themselves or helping one man that plants a church, they're helping Bible colleges that are training many young men and women who will go on to see churches planted and churches revitalized. And so what they're doing is directly so... And, and how does that happen? Because you pray and you give. You pray, you give. They're sent out from our church. They're supported spiritually, physically. They go, they help people. Churches get started because of it. In fact, I just got a text this morning from our, our mountain man missionary, Angelus, uh, who I hope will pray about taking on for support. He's Ningwan's brother. Uh, he, he's traveling up into some place I'd never heard of again. Pray for us. I don't know what that's called, where it's at. I don't know how he's getting there. He's probably wearing his Indiana Jones hat and his camo pants. Missionaries are called to go. The local church is called to send. So pray for your church's missionaries. Give faithfully. Give faithfully. It's not wrong to give money to other organizations, but it would be strange for you to give money to other organizations and not support missions through your local church. And not support missions through your local church. We go through a lot of effort to vet the missionaries that come in here. And even more so to vet the missionaries that we take on for support because wouldn't you feel rotten if you thought you were giving a bunch of money to God and it turns out that it wasn't being used right? Or that people were wasting it? You know, it looks a little suspicious when somebody says, I'm going to uh, the jungles in Brazil and I need to raise $11,000 a month. Hmm. I know many of you in here are pulling in $11,000 a month. And so you're wondering, you know, why is that weird? But for the rest of us that are not doing that, there's a little imbalance there. Something fishy's going on with that. And we try and make sure that that doesn't happen. When you give through the local church, there are many, many fail-safes that make sure that the money is going to further the work of God. And we should go in our community. Some of you should, should be involved in short-term mission trips. Some things along what I had a chance to go on. How many of you love the idea of going into rural Alaska and take boats down the Yukon River and find villages of native people there and preach the gospel? How many of you are like, that sounds awesome. On Wednesday night, we had a missionary just passing through with us, Brother Pinnocks. He goes places where you can't get to normally, drives the truck as far as he can, then he drops the snowmobiles off the back of the truck, out of the trailer, and then he drives on the snowmobiles for a couple hours until he finds these places in order to, to have church services with them in some uh, run-down, old, empty Episcopal building that no one uses anymore. You know what else he does? He straps a giant fan, a 50-pound fan, onto his back with a parachute, and he power paraglides up into these places where he finds people, these small villages that have no road access, no water access, and he, he flies around them until the people come outside to see what's going on. He opens up his cargo pants and he starts dropping John and Roman's gospel literature to them. Maybe the only time they ever, because, I mean, he searches Google Earth just trying to find buildings in the middle of nowhere and looking for the people that are there. I mean, there's things that you and I could be doing that would make a huge difference if we got involved in that. Now, I'm not offering to power paraglide. <laughs> Brother Penix, if you're watching, no, I'll stay in the boat. I can drive a boat. We can do that. Or perhaps some of you are called into full-time Christian service and you need to answer that call and to go. But whatever it is, let us serve God here in this local church, which he so graciously gave us, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment?
I want to thank you for your good attention this morning. As I mentioned before, we have a time of invitation where we invite you to consider what it is that God is speaking to you about and to act on it in your own heart and mind. If you're here today and you know without a shadow of a doubt, you know that heaven is your home because Christ is your Savior. No doubt. No doubt about it. Would you just, with every head, closed, every head bowed and every eye closed, would you mind just slipping your hand up and right back down? I just want to rejoice with you. Say, I know without a doubt that I'm saved. I know without a doubt. Hands up and just right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Perhaps there's somebody here today and you're not sure that you're a believer. This isn't a Baptist thing or a Catholic thing or a Presbyterian thing. This is simply putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. If you say, I don't have that assurance, I couldn't raise my hand, but boy, I would like to be sure. I would like to know. I don't want these doubts. I don't want to worry about where I go when this life is over. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to come to you. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if that's you and you say, I'm not sure, but I'd like to be sure, I just want to pray for you. Would you just slip your hand up and write back down? I'm not sure I'm saved, but I'd like to be. I'm not sure that Christ is my Savior, but I'd like, I'd like to know. Anybody like that? I just want to pray for you. Between you and me and God, you don't have to keep your hand up for long. Just up and right back down. Believer? Believer? Are you standing firm in the faith? Or are you being swept away by all of the voices and the talking heads and the social media posts and the slogans? Are you just trying to keep your head down so that nobody knows who you are and what you believe? If you are, these are dark days and this world needs your light. We're to be salt and we're to be light. And our light can't afford to be hidden for those people that don't know Christ as Savior that are in danger of eternal judgment. They need to know that a Savior has come and that God has made great efforts so that they would be saved, that they might have forgiveness. Maybe you need to retake re some ground in your life. Reestablish that testimony. Some things need to, to stop happening and some new things need to start happening. I don't know what that is, but if the Spirit of God has gotten your attention and you feel the pressure to give ground, and maybe you have given ground, but God is speaking to you and you say, Lord, helping me, I'm going to get in the right spot again and I'm going to stand firm for the faith. With no one looking around, would you just slip your hand up and say, that's me, I've, I've given some ground, but God helping me, that's done. That's done. God helping me, that's done. Amen, I see your hand. The Lord does. Anybody else like that? Saying, Lord, help me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand firm in the faith. Anybody? Amen. Praise God. Amen. The Lord sees your hands. Finally, finally, perhaps the Lord is speaking to you about your involvement in his work. Your involvement in his work around the world, whether that's by prayer, and we should all pray, there's nothing greater that we can do than pray. There are other things we can do, but not until first we've prayed. Maybe God has pressed it upon your heart to start giving to missions that you're not entirely sure how, but you're bringing your tithe and you, and you want to do more for God than that. You, you want to give maybe that $5 that we've talked about each week. Maybe more. Maybe you do give, but God is putting it on your heart to give more or to start giving again, whatever it is, and you see need to say yes to him. Father, I pray that you would take this time of invitation and that you would be glorified in it as your children say yes to you and the working of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.